Hey, this is John Vernadovich. I'm continuing my journey of writing the book, HR Like a Boss. And I'm super excited today to be joined by Tim Sackett, a friend of mine that uh, we connected through some HR technology presentations and various thought leadership and following him on his blog and all the fancy cool stuff that he does. So Tim, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So Tim, I know there may not be a lot of people that are, gonna, that are watching this now that don't know who you are, but maybe for those that don't, do you wanna share a, a quick uh, highlight of your sure. career and, and your connection with the human resource field? Yeah, so um, literally I'm the CEO currently of, a, of an, a technical staffing firm out of Michigan, but we kind of do stuff all over the country. Um, been doing that for the last 10 years or so. Before that, corporate HR and uh, corporate talent acquisition kind of positions, have my master's in HR. And about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more than 10 years ago, found a dude on online that you and I both know, Chris Dunn writing over at Fistful of Talent and HR Capitalist. And I was in a corporate job that, um, one of those jobs where I immediately kind of understood that I made a bad kind of decision when I took the job, but you're in it, so you gotta make the best of it. Found Chris online, sent him a mess message um, about some blog he had written that was exactly what I was thinking, but couldn't say in a very political HR environment. And uh, he uh, said, hey, you should start writing for me, which, I never even consider myself a writer or anything like that, but you know, he's like, come on, let's, you know, start writing at Fistful of Talent. So I did that. And then he was like, Hey, you're, you're actually pretty good at this and got a lot to say. You should do your own blog. So we started that. And then the crazy thing happens where, you know, you start writing online and then people start thinking like you actually know what you're talking about or they <laughs> they want to listen to you or whatever the audience starts to grow. Um, and then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you're like, oh, like, you know, you're being invited to speak at conferences and do stuff. And um, I wrote a book that, you know, Sherm published and, um, you know, it's just turned into a completely parallel world of, of work. My wife says you have a second full-time job and it truly has become a second full-time job. Something I love, like I never knew I'd love to write, but uh, turns out, you know, that it's, it was great therapy for me and my HR education. <laughs> How cool. Yeah, no, Dunn's a, Dunn's a great guy. Appreciate the chance to meet up with him a few times. And that, that's inspirational, right? Just gave you that little little crack, right, of, hey, you know, take, take a shot at this. Why don't you write? And then turns out you were good at it. And you, if I remember correctly, you write every day. Is that, is that you, tr you try to write every day or close to it? Yeah, in fact, that, and that was Chris's challenge. So about two years into Fistful of Talent, writing for him, um, you know, I was writing like the Friday kind of make fun of HR column every Friday, um, you know, make fun of what we do. Um, and I, you know, I was part of that so I could kind of make fun of myself, but, um, he's like, Hey, you should try it. Like, and he was writing every day and, and I go, I just don't know if I could, man, that seems like a lot, you know? And he's like, just try it for a year. We'll call it the Tim Sackett project. And that was over nine years ago. I've been writing every day. So I don't actually write every day. I post every day. Um, many times I'll write on a Sunday or, you know, someday I'll sit down and kick out two or three posts and then you schedule them out. So, sure. you know, and so yeah, every, there's Monday through Friday, there's something that goes up every day. And that if I'm on vacation, I might rerun like some best of and stuff like that. Here's the crazy part, John is like, I didn't realize this until I was probably five or six years into writing. I could, I could rerun a post I wrote three years ago 
and it will actually get more traffic the second time. It'll get more the third time, the fourth time, because the audience continues to grow and expand and then just the social presence in a lot of that stuff that you wrote, you know, like if you think about like right now, there's stuff I wrote during the Great Recession that is completely applicable right now and really hasn't changed. Like how to find a job with high unemployment, you know, or right. things of that sort, or how to recruit, you know, and the challenges of recruiting. I mean, we think it's easier because there's more candidates. It's not. It's actually more difficult um, because there's more candidates. So stuff like that um, gets more traffic now, you know. That's interesting. Yeah. Do, yeah. do you do you find, uh, I, I know, uh, having listened to um, a lot of songwriters and kind of like, how did you write this song? They have like a sketchbook or nowadays yeah. they have their iPhone. Like, are, is, does that happen to you? Like, are you in the shower and you're like, hey, wait a second, I got I to get out of here. And I got to write Constantly, down. I, you know, I have three um, sons that are, I mean, what, so 23, 22 and 17. So we're always conscious of not like texting and driving, you know, because my my go-to is to email myself and the subject line is just post. And then whatever idea I have, and I do that, I mean, literally anywhere from five to 10 times a day. Like I just mm -hmm. constantly have things that I think of that I want to do. And so now my wife, you know, when, when I'm driving with her, I'll constantly say, Hey, email me. And like, and she already knows the deal. Like she just writes it. She doesn't even ask questions because <laughs> half the time it's like a partial thought that makes no sense to, but, but, but it will for me, it'll trigger me to, to think it through. Um, and I, and that's another thing that like, that I learned is like, I've never had writer's block or anything like that. Like I just, I, you know, and I constantly have ideas cause I run into people that want to blog like, Oh, I want to write and I want to start a blog and like 90 days into it, they're just like, oh crap, I have nothing else to say. And I'm like, wow, I'm, thankfully I've never had that issue. Like I always fucking find something to talk about, so. Yeah. Does your wife ever ask you, are you actually paying attention to driving right now or are you just off in your, in your blog space land just thinking? The worst, time, the worst times are when it's right in the middle of a statement that she's like, so she's telling me. <laughs> and I'll go, hey, wait a minute, hey, email me this right now. Cause then she either thinks like she's the person who started the thought or I'm not listening to her either way. I'm not, I'm in trouble. So it's like, both of those are bad. Yeah. Both of those for you are bad. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing. Keep it up. I know it's uh, I know the community loves it and uh, appreciate you, you bringing that. So thank you. Yeah. So um, kind of going back to the, again, those days in, in that, that TA role or maybe practicing HR and obviously now, you know, you, you, you own a firm. Um, yeah. You, you practice HR in that firm right? Maybe not directly uh, as, a, as a primary responsibility, but uh, uh, in doing what you do. So how, how would you describe the purpose of, of human resources? Yeah, it's, it's that's an interesting question because I think, you know, I, people always ask me, what, do I like HR or TA better? Because I've done both roles and, and it, you know, at a high level and even at a practitioner level. And I'm always like, I love both. Like I loved all the aspects of HR of training development of employee relations of, you know, all of that kind of stuff, you know, the strategy and behind it. Um, but when I put all of that together and I think about HR as a big umbrella and say, okay, what's our main role? I still think it comes down to HR's really main purpose is to increase the talent of the organization. Now, easily you could connect dots and go, oh, well, that's TA. Um, because they're bringing talent in. But no, think about developing the talent you have. Think about retaining the talent you have. Think about all the aspects. For me, it's all about how do we increase the talent? Because we, if we just maintain, then our, our competition is going to pass us. So we have to figure out as HR leaders, 
how do we increase the talent of the organization constantly? And that's at every role. If I'm a benefits administrator, I'm figuring out how do I develop the best benefits package in the world? If I'm a comp analyst, how do I ensure that we have, you know, leading comp practices? It's every single aspect of HR is how do I increase the talent of our organization? Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And I think, I think that if I interpret what you're saying, it's not just like getting more people, obviously, it's just getting, getting um, more, uh, more out of them, more connection to the purpose of the company so that uh, they, they feel, um, you know, that, that purpose-driven work ethic at the same time that they're, they're delivering more to the company, right, in theory or yep. to the business. Yep, definitely. That's cool. So, so as a, as a relation to like success with that, like um, how, how would, how would you describe like success from an HR perspective or what you do every day? I'm pretty critical um, on HR and TA leaders about the subjective um, measurements we've used in the past. I'm not a fan of all of that. Right. I don't, I don't think like hiring manager satisfaction or, uh, I will even say employee engagement to me is kind of a, a misused metric of success. But um, I'm, a, I'm a data guy um, and I love HR data and we have so much of it. And I think we can take a look at how we drive success through really strong black and white data initiatives, right? Whether that's higher retention, whether that's, you know, um, you know, uh, increase uh, or, or utilization of our benefit plans, you know, whatever that might be, there's so many hard pieces of data that shows whether we're doing a great job of what we do and how we administer the programs and processes of all the stuff that we do in HR. Uh, you know, I, I think too often we allow ourselves to go, oh, um, we get into those executive kind of comp plans and we're building out like our bonus for the year. And, I, and, I, and again, I've, I've been a part of this, so I understand where it comes from, but too often I take a look and say, oh my gosh, so I'm going to meet my, I'm going to, I'm going to be 150% of my bonus plan this year for my director level HR role. And I take a look at it and go, I knew that before I even started the year, because the reality is it was so subjective that I knew I was going to make it. And then to me, that's how we fail. Right. And so if you describe success, to me, success then is really around the hard measures that will actually impact the bottom line of the business that go back to the P&L, that go back to our financials and go, wait a minute, we did this, we decreased this or we increased this and thus I can go back and, and make a dotted line to where that had an impact on the financials. Hmm. Yeah, and that's a profound part of the book. One of the things that I've, I've noticed is I don't, I don't, I think it's imperative everybody inside the company, not just HR, everybody understands how the financial performance of the company works. Like how do we make money and how do we lose money? Because when we make money, there'll be more of it to spread around, whether it's to you or others. And when we lose money, wait a second, and then we have to make changes that uh, could potentially impact, you know, a line worker's job or a CFO's job or everything in between. And yeah. I think, so I think so often as leaders, we're scared to really share, gross profit, net, net income, all that stuff with employees because we think they won't be able to process it and understand it. They'll just think, oh, well, if the company's gross profit was a billion dollars, I should get a raise. And then, you know, and then you go, well, you know, we're running negative net income, you know, <laughs> like, and, and so like, I think we can paint that picture. And again, if you're a leader and you go, hey, we have a gross profit of a billion dollars and we have a net income of 750 million, well, then you better have a good explanation of why that person can't get a raise, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. 
yeah, check out the owner's house, right? <laughs> and, and his and his billion dollar uh, yacht that that he or she owns. So cool. Was is there a particular time you talked about the financial financial performance and kind of driving those results, kind of increasing the talent to do that? Is there a time in your career where you where you saw that impact um, on on some of the results that you drove, or or a client that you work with, or an experience that you can 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 point to? Yeah, you know, I mean, for for me, um, I. I took my position working for a large health system in, in Michigan right before the great recession. And then the great recession hit and you had, you had an extended period of time of re- just really kind of good, you know, financial times. And you had so many leaders that were probably their entire leadership career was during good financial times. And all of a sudden the worst financial time, let's hope, right. <laughs> of our lifetime hit them and they, there was a major struggle around understanding headcount and staffing and overtime utilization and contractor use and all like we really, I mean, we went through an entire education around financials that they just truly never understood. At the same time before that um, job, I was with Applebee's right in an HR role. And we, I was constantly dealing with like restaurant managers um, really trying to understand staffing levels and spend you know, because again, you're trying to make, make a profitable restaurant. And what I always thought, like, again, I was just, it was newer in my kind of knowledge of financials as an HR person. And so it was all about cutting expense, cutting expense, cutting expense. And I had a really good VP of operations that I traveled with that helped really teach me the financials of that industry. And really ultimately every, every industry that's similar, whether that's hospitality, whether that's, um, fine dining, whether that's service, was the concept of, Tim, you staff for the business you want, not the business you have, because you can staff yourself out of business. If you think about, if you continue to reduce staffing because your business is going down, eventually there's going to be nobody in your building and no one's going to be, no one's coming to see, you know, buy or, you know, eat whatever you have, anything like that. And so it's this concept of having to spend a little money to make money, but in the right ways, right? You can't just be, oh, we're going to have, you know, four, you know, hostesses on a Monday night and you have four families show up to eat at your restaurant. Like that's, that's obviously not a good way. But at the same time, you don't want to have anybody to have bad customer service. Thus, they're not going to come back. They're going to tell their family and their friends about it. And it's just this death spiral downward. And so you constantly have to be cautious about not cutting yourself to the part, part where, you can't. And even in my own business within the, you know, the staffing and, and TA world is, it's another thing. I think I take, you knew I both deal with a lot of HR teams and TA teams where they'll go, well, you can either shop that out or you can hire somebody, you know, and, and there's this constant give and take of when's the right time to do that. And there, there's no great answer, but I think you have to really understand the impact of, of what we do on the, on the bottom line financials. Yeah, sure. Yeah, which is a significant premise of, of the book, too, of, of driving those business results, kind of being a business leader first. It just so happens to practice HR. And speaking of that, so from the characteristics of those that stand out to you that have done that, I know, obviously, you've practiced human resources and TA. Uh, you presented to the community, you deliver that work today. You banter with some of them in, in your Twitter feed, <laughs> which I'm sure those are spirited at times. What, what makes a standout HR pro to you? I think for me, it's, um, it's always about people that have um, 
an interest in, in one is understanding what the business actually does, how they make money or how they survive. Um, you don't have to know how to do it. You have to understand what it is in whatever organization you're supporting. If you're an HRBP and you're supporting operations, are you spending time in the operations to understand the real world aspects? And again, you don't have to be able to do it. If you're, if you're supporting IT, I don't need you to know how to code. I need you to know the, the life of a coder that lives in your organization um, to really be able to understand how do you help then impact that person to perform better, um, you know, ultimately, you know, to help the organization perform better. And so for me, it's having that, it's, a, it's, a, it's an innate desire to want to be more involved at a higher level in the organization. It's not just, oh, I'm in HR and I have these three processes that I'm responsible for and I just have to ensure that they're done and then I'm going to clock out at the end of the day and I'm going to go home and never, I'm not going to think about it. It's somebody that has a broader, I think, not just, it's not knowledge, it's just a desire to be a part of the business in a broader way. Yeah, which kind of leads into the premise of the, the premise, the kind of concept of the book is about thinking differently, being different and taking action uh, and just looking at your role differently, immersing yourself in the business, uh, as you mentioned. So is there anything that you can encourage the HR folks to do to, to do that? I know you said kind of driving those kind of P&L based business results, but anything specifically that you might suggest? Yeah, you know, I think some of it, um, and, and I got this from my time on the corporate side of HR is to be humble. Um, so often I find that HR people, you know, we get a bad rap um, sometimes in the organization and partly because I think they, they come across as a little bit of as a, a formal power hungry. I'm in HR and thus, I, because I'm in HR, um, there's a legal aspect to this and I'm gonna use my title and I'm gonna use my function as a hammer, as a weapon to, to, for, to against somebody in the organization that's not doing exactly what I think you should be doing versus going, hey, as a real business partner, partner, my role is to advise you of risk and then help you to help you through the decision you're gonna make. So if I say, hey, there's a 25% chance if you do this, we're gonna get sued, then as a leader, you still might decide, okay, well, we're gonna make that decision. Okay, let me set us up for the most success possible. And just in case it goes down that path, there's a 75% chance we're not gonna get sued, great. So, but you know, let's have all, all that. It's not to say there's a 25% chance we're going to get sued. And so I'm not going to allow you to do this. It, or, you know, because legally we can't, right? And that's what we start using these words in this language around HR stuff constantly. That's not necessarily exactly true, but we, we you use it as a weapon. And, and I think that's one of those things that we have to start, you know, looking differently. And for me, that's kind of being humble. It's kind of being able to, um, understand, you know, where your role is and how to help versus, you know, how to hurt. Um, and, and ultimately be, be willing to, to fill a void, be willing to step in and take care of stuff that nobody else is willing to do. I'll go back to like the health system. When I was there, we were going and making a transition to electric, uh, you know, electronic medical records, EMR. Um, and again, clearly an I, a major IT project, but you had to pull in every single function of the organization from nurses to physical therapists to psychiatrists or whatever to, to be able to, to make this happen. And ultimately it touched every part of the people world. 
And so we were sitting in a big boardroom and they're at like literally a, a group of 50 leaders in the health system and the CEO's going, Hey, I need, I need somebody to step up and take the leadership role on this. And everyone's looking at it and knowing and that guy, knowing that he was completely overwhelmed, was not raising his hand, was not making eye contact. And I'm like, we'll do it. Not very everyone's kind of was like, wait a minute. Like we don't need, no, like Tim, wait, well, there has to be somebody else. And ultimately I explained why I thought it should be us. And they're like, okay, you got it, you know? And so again, stepping into the void that, you know, of of any organization, there's so many times, like, you know, John, you and I both know, like the joke in HR is, well, we don't plan the company picnic, you know? And I'm like, why? Why wouldn't you plan the company picnic? If no... (laughs) We're the best people to do that, right? And we should, we should want to do that. We should have fun with that. And we should, you know, is again, is, am I being defined by my ability to plan a company picnic? Well, yeah, if I'm crappy at it, I'm going to be defined. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Be good at it. Be great at it. Run the best company picnic you ever had. Instead, we try to throw it off on somebody because we think that's not strategic. And you're just like, oh, I, I just can't stand that kind of mentality. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Do you think that kind of heavy hand or kind of u- using the power that HR can have uh, as a weapon is partially why you think the, the non-HR community dislikes HR? Like, it, it, 100%. 100%. I think it's, I think um, every single day in HR, you carry around an AK-47. And the question is, are you going to use it or not? Or are you going to use your influence to get the decisions and, you know, and the relationships to get the, you know, I can always go, Hey, there's a legal aspect to this and I'm not going to allow you to do it. I'm going to bring counsel in knowing that counsel is always going to go to the most risk adverse, you know, decision and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But the reality is I burn the relationship and I'm using zero influence to make that happen. And I think, so for me, it's, it's, you know, if, if I, if, you know, what's, what is it? The ice cube that says today was a good day. I didn't have to use my AK. Right. Yeah. I'm like in HR, it's a great day. If, in, if you never have to use your AK, right. If you never have to bring out the legal aspects of your job, that formal power that you have, it's a great day. Yeah. So interesting. You share that. Cause uh, when I first did this presentation, it was at the uh, Northern Ohio HR conference and I put a warning like up before the slide came that I hate HR, right? It was like, I hate HR. And I was trying to create a dialogue and I was worried. It was like early on in the presentation and I was worried, like they're going to boo me off the stage and say, John, (laughs) stage left, time to leave. And honest to God, Tim, we spent 15 minutes. I had had 90% of the room raising their hand. Let me tell you why people hate us. And they went real personal, like real, like zingers to many of these people about, and it, it, I had at some point like, hey guys, we got to reel this in or else I'm not going to get the rest of the content done that uh, I know you're here hopefully to hear some of it. And it, it was, there was a ton of spirit around that question and they feel it every day. And to your point, if people think you're walking around carrying a, a gun uh, in your analogy and you can take me out anytime you want, that's a, t- that's a real tough way to create a relationship with somebody that's, that's doing that, right? Yeah. You know, I, I did, um, I, I have a presentation that I do and I, and the basis of the presentation was done over a couple of hundred interviews with CEOs, COOs, like high level C-suite executives and, in in understanding what was it that, you know, why did they really, you know, kind of dislike HR? What do they think HR could do better and all of that background. And it's one of the bigger ones they brought up was, you know, it's, it's just, you know, 
they they think HR is unbending and it's because HR tends to want to treat everybody the same. And they in that same vein of saying, oh, we, well, we have to treat everybody the same legally, Tim. We have to treat everybody the same. And then you're like, wait a minute. Actually, no, there's nothing legal that says you have to treat everybody the same. You can't treat anybody you know, unequal, right? But if I'm a top performer and I'm a CEO, and this is why I think C-suite really doesn't like HR. If you're a C-suite, you've been a high performer your entire career, you've moved up. Thus, you've been treated differently. And when they look at an HR person that says, well, we have to treat everybody exactly the same, they look at you like you're a moron because they know that's not the truth. They know that's not the case. Plus, if I'm an executive that wants to drive high performance, I want to treat my high performers better than the walking dead in my organization, right? You better not treat them exactly the same. Now, are there ways that we have to treat employees the same in certain things? Of course, but that's very narrow. And we have this big range of things that we can do and should be doing to, to reward those best and brightest in our organization. And I think HR comes across as complete morons when they try to act like, oh, everybody has to be treated the same. So we can't do that for Tim, but we, you know, if we can't, if we can't do it for John. Right. Yeah. No, I get it. Yeah. And check out your local MBA roster to see uh, the pay salary and output of production. Um, the problem is, is when you get those large contracts and tail end of a contract for uh, <laughs> one of those players that are still sitting on it. But anyway, I had just a few more questions, Tim, not you sure. being kind of growing up in the TA world and, you know, focusing, I know your book um, to that community. I'm, I'm curious if in this, this may be unfair, or maybe, maybe you do have a, a silver bullet question, but is there, is there one, one particular question that you like to ask or kind of series of questions that helps you increase that talent within your, your company or your clients companies? Well, there's definitely one silver bullet question I ask for new people coming in. Um, you know, and, and for me, it's, I want to understand, cause here's the, here's what we get, right. Is we, it doesn't matter the title, right? So let's say it's for an HRBP. I'm interviewing an HRBP role. I have an HRBP with experience coming into interview and I'll sit there and say, tell me about, tell me about HR. Tell me about what, you know, it, you know, intrigues you about HR, what, you know, energizes you about HR. And they're like, Oh my God, Tim, HR is my life. I'm like, Oh, wow. Great. So, so talk to me about that. What do you do outside of the actual job to show me HR is your life. And then they go, well, oh, Tim, I, I come to work every day. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> oh, well, I used to be a member of SHRM. Not anymore, but I used to be. So basically HR is your life because you come to an HR job every day. Yeah. No, no, I want to know if you're truly passionate about that job, whether that's HR, accounting, IT, whatever. There's things you do outside your life. You and I, I mean, are great examples. Like we, we get involved with Disrupt HR. We get involved with, you know, local HR communities um, and bringing things together. You're going to write a book. I wrote a book. Like, I mean, that's being involved and having passion around the function that you've decided to, you know, to go after in your life. Now, is everybody going to have that? No, but the best talent does, man. Like it's, yeah. it, it, it comes out like a giant, like, beam of light <laughs> yeah no it's funny you say that I'm, I'm actually reading right now unstoppable by dave anderson i don't know if you've seen that book but uh, he talks about the four types of performers game changers playmakers undertakers and caretakers and huge section of the book about passion enthusiasm attitude 
Uh, and he's, he's just trying to find game changers. That's all, all yeah, I want and, in my team are game changers. And people will give you excuses, right? Like they're like, oh, well, I'm a, a single mom that's, you know, doing this and doing this and I don't have time. But I, if I had time, I would do those things. I literally just was on a podcast with a, a single mom with three kids who is not only running the podcast, she's still doing a full-time HR job. She's in the midst of writing a book. Like, don't give me that crap, right? It depends on, if again, it, it, you're probably not doing it because it's not your passion and that's fine. I get that. But don't tell me it's your life, you know? Yeah. My dad would always say, if you, if, if you really want to do something, you'd find time for it. Don't tell me you don't have time for it, right? Yeah. So, so true. Yeah. yeah. So if you, if you could go back uh, to that young, younger Tim Sackett, you know, fresh out of college, starting your career, is there, is there a particular piece of advice that, that you would have given yourself then, knowing what you know now? Yeah, you know, I think the hardest thing for me to grasp in my career, and it took me a long time to really come to grips with it, was that concept of you're going to have people around you that aren't, um, aren't as passionate about performance or aren't as passionate about your, the job as you are or the company or whatever that might be, right? And that's not a bad thing. They're not a waste of space or they're not bad people or whatever that might be. And I know early on as a leader in my career, I burned some people out because I didn't think that they had the same expectations as me. And thus they must be bad performers. And, and they're not. I, it's, and it's still, it's so hard to separate that, right? Like as you and I, as business owners, are constantly in that road of it's okay that they come in and do their job and perform well. They don't have to be an A player. Like the world needs B players as well, you know? And for, for the longest time, I couldn't accept that. I'm like, no, no, no. Like everybody has to be an A player um, or they're awful. And, and so I think having that understanding and calming down a little bit probably would have, you know, maybe kept some people, um, and maybe even help them reach levels of a player. Right. Um, because it's, again, some of it, again, it could be time in life could be, they're not sure yet what they want, who knows, but you know, it's, it's understanding as a leader, you're, you're never, the entire team is never going to have the same passion of you have of, of whatever that might be that vision you have for, for yourself and your team. Yeah, no, that's good. Profound. Last question, bud. How would yep. you describe someone that does HR like a boss? <laughs> I would say uh, they're they're charismatic, um, but you know, I take away that because like you and I both know some in, introverts. I think that are really good in the HR realm, but they know how to. So maybe it's relationship building. Um, they know how to build a real good, lasting relationship where they can leverage that when needed. Um, they don't need it all the time. They're not asking to move it all the time, but it's there. They're giving um, for those individuals where they have that relationship. Um, and ultimately they're focused on the outcomes of the business versus the outcomes of HR. And I think ultimately that be, it's so hard, I think, to, to because often then we have to give up some things in HR that we're so you know kind of concerned about. And when I was at Applebee's, our leadership team called it the A, you have to give up your A card, right? So if you think of the things that you have to do in your life, you have, you know, decisions that will be made for you. That's a C card. <laughs> you have decisions that you will make jointly with other people or one other person. That's a B card. And then there's decisions you get to make all by yourself. That's the A card. And there's so few of those decisions we get to make by ourselves. 
And so it's super hard for us to give those up. And in HR and in an organization, it's super hard for us to give those up. So being able to give that A card away will increase your influence. And I think if I think of like HR, like a boss, those individuals who are willing to give up that A card, knowing that it's going to come back to them in spades, that's probably, that's probably all I can ask for. Yeah. Seems counterintuitive in some respects, right? In, in for that. sure. Yeah. Hey, Tim, you're a good man. I appreciate you taking the time. I know uh, you know, kind of the purpose of HR in your mind is uh, to increase that talent uh, and continue to get great people that come into uh, the organization that, that you as the HR pro are, are leading to be humble in that and just be real careful about uh, the power and responsibility that we in HR have and, and make sure to use that in, in a very careful and thought provoking way that drives business results. So definitely really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me, John.